Hey there, fellow rethinker. Stefan van Niekerk is the president of the Durham Society for Economic Pluralism. In this episode, we talk about the society, learning about investing and the cultural differences he has experienced. Of course, the episode contains a whole lot more, but you will have to listen to find out what else you can learn from him. Enjoy this episode of the Rethinking Podcast, coming to you from Rethinking Economics NL. Hey, Stefan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So what have you been up to? Ah, uh, geez, it's been mostly, um, <laughs> that's been mostly working on the dissertation and master's applications. That's, that's what's been the big ones the last so two months. what do months. you do? Uh, what for my dissertation? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So like, since we last spoke, I think the last thing I gave you was that I, w- I was looking into like inequality and how that can contribute to financial fragility, but I had never, ha- I didn't have any like formal model for it. I didn't have any formal way of looking into it. That was kind of just the broad area I wanted to explore. Um, and so now what I'm doing is I'm taking a, uh, essentially a new Keynesian DSGE model, um, which, yeah, which aren't, oh, okay. (laughs) Long story short, a DSGE model is the models they use, um, right before the financial crisis. When the financial crisis happened, they kind of fell out of favor because they didn't predict the financial crisis. So it's not ideal that I'm using it, but it's kind of the most advanced model we've been taught. So it's, it's kind of, uh. Well, I don't love the model itself. It's kind of the best I have to work with, given my current knowledge, unless I want to go study like a master's model and use it in my dissertation, which I don't think I'm capable of yet. Um, so wait, there's no better model than the one that didn't predict the financial crisis? Oh, no, there is. There is just that at an undergrad level, we're not taught it yet. Um, it, it, there, it's a bit, I think, I think the better ones are a bit too advanced. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so what do you then plan on doing with that? Sure. So essentially, the way a DSGE model works is you've got like three main equations. You have the IS curve, which I'm sure you've heard of. That's like ISLM, classic yes, IS curve. But then you replace LM curve because it doesn't really work very well uh, in reality. Um, and you replace it with a inflationary curve, like inflation versus uh, output curve. And then another curve, which is the monetary policy response, essentially. That's like the three equations, how they work. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to incorporate into then the IS equation that a certain group of the consumers um, uh, in the economy, instead of just the classic utility is, is as a function of your consumption, they're going to have utilities as a function of their own consumption, as well as the consumption of the, of the upper class. And in this model, the upper class would be the investors or the capitalists. And so, so that way you get like some kind of like relative income hypothesis. Uh, sorry for interrupting you there, but you get some kind of like utility from people who are like more better off than yourself. And it's in an indirect way kind of incorporates what I want to look into in terms of like how inequality can affect the kind of macroeconomic fluctuations. Um, and then so, when you look at that by like financing it with debt, you can see how it can sort of lead to a, a debt situation. But that's the whole model in, in its simplest form. Wow. Okay. So you in the end you want to see how debt like reaches certain groups of people then or like creates inequality what do you want to the the broad aim was to i've been so when i was like thinking of dissertation topics i was just reading a whole bunch of literature from all over the place to try and find a topic and there seems to be a a growing like consensus in, in from some economists that inequality contributed to financial crisis because uh it went up severely both before the great depression and before the great recession so what I wanted to explore was like, okay, well, can I formally model a way for this to take place? Um, and this is my like attempt at doing so. Uh, it's probably not going to be as advanced as like an actual economist or whatever, but I'm, I'm going to give it my best shot. Well, I mean, you're an economist in training, so. In training, that's al- yeah. That's already yeah. pretty good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you'd hope so. So I have a little bone to pick with um, the Dear UK. How is it over there? <laughs> oh, oh what, with the, since now Brexit's happened, right? Is that what you mean? I mean, that's part of it. <laughs> yeah. And the, the nice, uh, your version of the virus. I mean, I know you want yeah. to be special, you know, <laughs> getting out of the EU, but really a virus? Yeah, we, we got a whole new strain just, just to, um, well, I say we, I'm, I'm, I'm American. But anyway, yeah, I, I study here. I, I mean, things are like, it doesn't feel that different yet, if, if it makes any sense, in terms of economics, at least, like from Brexit. Mm. Um, I, it did seem like the deal was better than what a lot of economists were fearing in terms of like, you know, 
we're fearing like a very hard Brexit with in, in, you know, incredible levels of barriers. What I have been hearing around is that the deal, at least for England, isn't very good for the financial centers of uh, the, the financial center in London. The financial firms seem to be getting it doesn't seem to favor them. But I haven't looked at why, to be honest. But that that's what I've been hearing. Uh, in terms of the virus, yeah, that's not good. Yeah, we're on full lockdown again. So oh we're goodness. not we're not doing so great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we we received it from you, so now we are in um, the same position. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's probably going to spread all over again, and we're going to be in like just to tackle it like we did the first strand. Yeah. Mm. So, do you think that I don't know if there is an after this pandemic, but do you think the economy will like permanently change, or do you think we will turn back to before the pandemic? What do you What do you think? That's a great question. Um, hopefully, well, hopefully there will be an after this pandemic <laughs> one day. Uh, it might be a few years from now, but um, yeah, I hope so. A anyway, uh, when you asked me that question, I just thought of two things. I think like, will if you're asking, will we recover? Then I think yes, we will. Um, but I, obviously, I don't know how long that's going to take. I mean, just from like obviously 2008, we had just barely, I think, recovered, or we were just got back to the rate of growth we were at before. Some stats I think did like stick 20, like 2017 or something. Yeah, or 2016. Yeah. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure about the rates of recovery, nor of the shape of it. So you, you I, I, like, if you, you hear all these kind of like V-shape recovery or K-shape recovery or, or you know, U-shape recovery or whatever, and a lot of talk is going on about how like the uh, uh, top echelons of society will recover. So like investors and, and financial firms will recover, but the real sector of the economy uh, might not. Um, to be honest, we'll just have to wait and see. It, it is unfortunately... How, with how like the financial sector works the financial sector always recovers before the real economy does unfortunately just that's just like you can see by the stock prices it just it's been insane uh, <laughs> um so yeah so going back to your question though i think like one of the things that's coming out of um the pandemic is is e-commerce is a massive thing now because it's really like accelerated the trend i think we would have gotten there anyway um with you know how amazon was doing and and a few of their rivals like alibaba and, and maybe mercado libre in, in latin america uh, but it's really accelerated that. So I think that's going to be a fundamental difference, even once the pandemic's done and we can go back to like shopping in a store or whatever. Do you think, does that change your perspective on economics? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Mm. Uh, what specifically, that I, the pandemic or e-commerce? Well, I mean, probably both, but e-commerce was already coming up. I just, yeah. I, in my opinion, it just kind of accelerated everything with the pandemic. Mm. But the pandemic itself, does it change economics, do you think? Does it change the perspective we have? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I would hope it would. Let's just put it that way. There's a lot of different things we're looking at now. Let me just I need to, I need to think of all of them. Let me start with like quantitative easing, right? Because um, uh, that's been increasing massively. I think just in the UK, it's double. So, um, so we had like quantitative easing from 2008 to 2019. I think it was around 490 billion pounds somewhere there. And now it's double that. <laughs> uh, so it's quite insane. Um, however, the, the one thing, like to give them one thing of credit, regardless of how you feel about quantitative easing, is when we were recovering from 2008, all of the quantitative easing was just focused at, at financial uh, corporations. So it was just at the big banks, the investment firms, et cetera, et cetera. Now, parts of it, I don't know how much, but parts of it are at least going to like, uh, just like industrial firms or like what I would term like real sector firms and not just financial firms, which is a good thing that I think that's a positive, but I didn't look into the exact like uh, how much goes to you know each sector. So I think in that sense, the way we, we look at quantitative easing has evolved since 2008, but it's still a very like uncertain thing and something to look into going forward. Did um, you change your perspective on economics though? The pandemic and everything that happened? Um, my perspective on economics has been for a while that it's, it's very uh, uh, theoretical and not applicable uh, or, or, or too inapplicable, at least at the undergraduate level. I, I do know apparently once going into master's or maybe PhD, maybe it gets a bit better, maybe it gets worse. Maybe you just use more equations, I don't know. But, but what I will say is I've long thought that um, economics is, is uh, it's just, it's a flawed subject in and of itself. And I don't mean that necessarily in the worst way. It is why I'm interested in it because it's so like weird and sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But uh, I, I've long thought that we, it needs like, you know, radical change. Hmm. So how would yeah. you change it? Or what would you, where would you start 
changing it? Probably with what with the uh, with the society I'm in, with the Durham Society for Economic Pluralism, is is probably the best way because we we can talk about like changing it and the flaws of different schools and et cetera, et cetera, but taking like an actual kind of tangible approach to changing it at like a very low level from like, you know, as a, just a university student is hard. Um, and I think the different initiatives we try to do contribute. So, you know, whether it's like participating in a debate with another society, whether it's some of the articles um, we've written on the, on the heterodox schools, uh, all of it kind of raises awareness of the different branches of looking at economics. And hopefully by doing that, we might get some more, you know, classic demand and supply, but we might get some more demand for, for more applicable economics at, at the institutional level. So for those who don't know, what is the Durham Society for Economic Pluralism? Sure. Uh, so that we essentially want to uh, uh, look at economics from any, all schools of thought. Essentially, so a lot of people don't know, and more specifically, a lot of undergrad econom uh, economic students don't know, is that there's multiple different schools of thought when looking at economics. You have neoclassical, uh, post-Keynesian, New Keynesian, Austrian institute, uh, institutional, the, the list goes on. Um, but what we're taught in class is, is mostly the neoclassical framework. You have some elements of um, post-Keynesianism, uh, Keynesianism, sure, but uh, it's mostly the, the neoclassical kind of doctrine. And so a lot of people just don't know that there's other economics out there. And we kind of just want to raise awareness of the fact that there are many other schools. And so what we do is we take an economic phenomenon and economic theory, a current issue today, and we look at it just from different lenses of economics. And, and we hope to like kind of give people that kind of like avenue uh, to, to look at it through in a way that hopefully it's you know, semi-accessible. So what kind of things are you working on right now with the society? That's a good question. We, we actually got a lot going on, to be honest. So we just um, we are almost we're about to complete our next edition for our online magazine. So our online magazine is basically just uh, uh, articles writing about anything we really want to, but it, it can be on a you know a current economic issue, uh, alternate school of thoughts, whatever. My topic was uh, I wrote the um, I'm sure you've heard of Hyman Minsky. No, okay. Oh god, okay. Uh, basically, I'll be I'll be brief on him, but he basically became famous for uh, predicting that. Capitalism in its current form, at least as it was back in the 1970s, uh, is is inherently destabilizing. So you're always going to get something that causes a big crisis. And the story essentially went as like, since banks are profit profit makers, uh, once profit opportunities start to run out, they become riskier and riskier. Uh, and then we'll engage in speculative activities, which eventually will contribute to a financial crisis. Once the crisis happens, then obviously in the recovery, like business cycle, you have plenty of opportunities to make profit but slowly those run out and the cycle goes on and on and on. That was a very kind of brief like version of this thing. I didn't do it great justice, but there you go. Um, the problem with Hyman Minsky is that his whole like idea was more of a narrative. It's a story. It's not like a, a formal model. So it's not like Keynes is kind of, you know, a Y is equal to A plus I plus G plus X minus M or whatever. There's no formal modeling of it, at least not from Hyman Minsky himself, um, which is why it's been in such like the heterodox kind of um, views of economics because economics is largely respected for either econometrics and regressions or, or economic models. Um, so getting back to my article, sorry, is I basically just gave a summary of the different ways uh, that economists have attempted to model him from different schools of thought. Uh, and that, that was my article. Okay. Why do you yeah. think he didn't model it? It's, it's very hard to model. Uh, it, it, you know, you need like so many endogenous variables. Um, and, and it, it also in, it goes against like the, uh, uh, modeling techniques of the time so like in that time it was very kind of supply side heavy very focused on the whole idea that like supply creates its own demand you can never have a situation where like demand doesn't equal supply so you can never have like a you know a recession or whatever um and so given that those were the techniques it was kind of almost impossible to do it at the time so he was missing kind of the tools and the ways of building a model he needed or he believed in in theory but didn't have the tools to build the model either that's or um uh he just didn't respect the current modeling tools to such to such an extent that he didn't bother <laughs> i'm not fully sure exactly why i i haven't looked into why he didn't model it. besides the difficulty it, you know associated with it hmm. yeah so of the society you're the president yeah. why did you want to be in a leading role role in the society um well it's mostly just because i'm quite passionate for it uh 
I kind of discovered the society at the end of my first year and I only became involved during the second year. Um, and I wanted to take up a leading role in it just because I kind of like what we do. I thought it's um, very nerdy of me, but uh, I just enjoy the economics we do. So I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll apply to be um, president. Uh, and it was almost kind of a burden thrust on me in a way because I think of the second year is going into third year, which is the final year. It was only me and I think Radhika who you spoke to um, uh, a few months ago. Uh, and one other guy who were, who was kind of still staying on as senior members of the society. So it was kind of us to, up to us three to take up the reins if we wanted the society to survive in a way. So, so what did you learn from it? Um, you know, a lot. It, 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 uh, uh, it's, we, you kind of over, always overestimate how much you can get done with the time you have, especially as a student. <laughs> um, uh, so we, we have so many different like initiatives we want to do and, and I didn't even list all the ones we've, we've been doing maybe I'll, I'll get back to that a bit later um, but uh, it's kind of like it really teaches you that there's very uh, like a lot of importance in kind of setting a, a time frame and a schedule and uh, and deadlines to make sure you like meet all of those now I think this year we've largely been quite good we've gone been able to kind of pursue many of the initiatives we wanted to but uh, it kind of always happens as a student where it's like there's just there's just too much going on with your studies and everything else I mean, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so next to the magazine, what kind of projects are you working on? Thank you for asking, because I got a bit sidetracked when you when you asked me that question with my articles. So we have the magazine. Um, we also, uh, you know, participate and organize a few debates. So we're having a we have a debate team that's participating in the. Uh, I think UCL is hosting a big like inter-university debating competition, and so we entered a team for that. Um, cool. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. We had the first round today and um, we won, which was nice. I think the motion was this house would ban credit cards to everyone below the national average. And we were opposed to that. Um, so we, we participate in debates like that. We also try and have debates with other like pluralism societies. So we're, in, we're um, organizing a debate with the post-crash economic society in Manchester. They have a much cooler name than we do. <laughs> but <laughs> at the end of the day, we're, we're equivalent societies and just in different universities. Um, so that's the debating sphere of things. We also run a curriculum review where we kind of gather student satisfaction surveys um, of the different economic modules. And we, we present it to the university with our own, hopefully kind of realistic recommendations of what can be improved. Um, and lastly, we have kind of speaker series. So this year actually is one of the few upsides of the pandemic for us, because usually we'd invite a speaker up to Durham, he or she would speak, uh, uh, you know, in a lecture kind of form. Um, and it will be good fun now. We can't do that this time because of the pandemic. Uh, but what we were able to do is have a whole bunch of Zoom online talks. And because of that, we were able to ask, you know, professors from all around the world to speak. And so we've been having, I think we had five or six just last term of this, you know, speaker series, which has been a lot of fun. That's really cool. So what kind of topics do you, do you have on? Or what kind of topics do you want to have on? Good question. I mean, we... More or less, it, it's kind of like we'd like pluralistic topics, uh, but at the end of the day, it's more about the professor and what he or she wants to talk about. Um, so, and, and we're also not, like not just about alternate schools of thought, we're also just about like talking about a problem from all the different aspects involved in it. So, um, for example, we hosted one of the professors who's very pro-Brexit, specifically because we're very anti-Brexit as a society. <laughs> most of our members are, are pretty much as opposed to Brexit as you can get, I mean, myself included. Um, so we were like, well, maybe it's a good idea to get the, one of the guys who's very pro it to try and kind of understand the, you know, thinking behind it. And so we, we had him, he, it's, uh, his name's Alan Sked, he's a former professor of LSE. So he was one, uh, we had um, a James Galbraith, the son of, of the Galbraith back in the day, which was a lot of fun. He talked about uh, international inequality, essentially. Um, who else? Uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. We had. It's really bad that I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll go look it up. But we had we had um, one of our professors here at Durham talked about the Chinese economy just as a whole, like how it's developed since it's it kind of departed from its more like communist roots, um, and what it's kind of doing now with regards to its its economic growth going forward. Okay. Yeah. So did the, the pro-Brexit man, did he uh, convince you of anything? Did he change no. your perspective? <laughs> no, uh, he didn't. Um, but it was, it's, uh, it's always good to like, at least understand where he's coming from and, and why. He came from a more um, uh, historical perspective, given the, the past um, 
relationship between the UK and the EU. He didn't come so much from an economics perspective, uh, but it was interesting to hear that side of things as well. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So when it comes to the, the curriculum reviews you do, what, what are your frustrations with the curriculum that you want the university to look into more? Yeah, there's two main ones and addressing one is like realistic and addressing the other one isn't. So I'll start with the first one. And that's just essentially making it like just a bit more applicable. You know, like when we do basic micro or macro, it's always like get the first derivative up to get, find the maximum or minimum of the function uh, or to find the you know gradient equals to zero and then get the second derivative to find the maximum min and all those things. And we always apply it to situations of like um, like profit maximization, profit min uh, uh, loss minimization, you know, that those kind of things. And it's just very like unapplicable to the real world uh, from an economist per, you know, perspective. And there's just so many of those examples in the in the curriculum. So one of the recommendations we've made is just to say we accept the current economics you're teaching us even if it's purely neoclassical but can we make it just more applicable to, to situations we might find ourselves in later on in life uh, and, and, the, and durham to their credit is starting to do you know some more of that we uh we took um you know the same thing we're talking about first derivative second derivative of like a, of a function and applied it to like pollution emissions and like ecological economics which is which is really really cool where you have to kind of uh, uh, maximize profit while minimizing pollution or, or whatever. And so that's very, it's very cool. It's very encouraging to see that. And uh, that's one of the like realistic kind of changes we can make. The more unrealistic one is that we'd also like to have the other schools kind of have more of a presence, like offer modules teaching other schools of thought, like post-Keynesianism or heterodox economics or, or you know, the list goes on. And the reason that's an unrealistic recommendation is, is because of the way economic research is viewed or, or uh, uh, rated maybe. So like the top journals um, are very kind of neoclassical. And so then when you write in like a post-Keynesian journal, it's not particularly respected by a lot of the economic body. And, and the way I think universities hire their professors is based off of like their standing in various academic journals. So you see kind of this kind of like, it, it, it's a feedback from the top in the type of economics that they specialize in when they teach at university. So there's very few who end up having like a, an in-depth knowledge um, of the alternate school who can actually teach it. And that's why it's quite, even though we can always tell, you know, yell at Durham for not having, you know, heterodox economics, there's only so much they can do when they don't have the resources to, to, meet, to, to meet the demand. Um, so that it's kind of, that's a hard one to change. So how, how do you go about changing that? Is that then the hiring process of professors or do you go even somewhere else to figure out how to fix that? or to, how to get that knowledge into the university to the students? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and once again, there's only so much we can do. I think like, obviously there's a whole bunch of components to it. You know, part of it's the university and the hiring process. More importantly is, is the way journals kind of rate uh, economic thinking. And the only way to kind of change those things, at least from our level, is to just you know, raise awareness of different economics in different schools and, and hopefully by doing that, we'll raise the demand for like learning about those economics and then get some of the heterodox economics in some more kind of top rated journals so that then the whole process can kind of slowly change. Um, but at least at our level with our resources, that's kind of the best we can do at the moment. So when you, when you have a whole bunch of topics in the society, how do you decide what you want to focus on? Uh, that's mostly just to your kind of your preference and what you were involved in before. So I was involved in the article writing before I was an editor last year, uh, and I was also involved in the debating. Um, so that's kind of where I more or less stick around in, in, in the society. Now I kind of uh, help the, the head editor with all the articles and help write some of them and get involved in the debates. Whereas Radhika, her thing, for example, was always more the curriculum review. She was always very involved in like kind of making as much like change to the curriculum as you can. So it, it's kind of more just your preference and where you, and where you want to be involved in, to be honest, given like the time you have. Okay. So what are important values for you in leading the society? Oh, uh, most of the kind of standard ones, you know, integrity, honesty, uh, 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 you know, hard work at the end of the day. Probably the most, the, the, the main one is what I touched on earlier about, um, uh, uh, you know, meeting a deadline, meeting a goal is quite important in a student society because it's very easy to kind of just get lost in the well, the work and then just like nothing happens for a few months, which is always quite a shame. So 
a little bit different topic, but you're half American, half South African. Yeah. Being <laughs> in the UK. Kind of, kind of a weird one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just left the EU. Yeah. How do you look at all of that? How do you look at the different cultures and economics and how they handle their society? How, what do you, how do you look at all that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's um, at least from the American and UK perspective, uh, at risk of maybe generalizing a bit too much, it's obviously very Western, very you know, Western style of thinking, Western economics, Western context. And what I, in my own experience, consider lucky is the fact that I was raised more or less my whole life in South Africa, which has a very different economic situation to the West, um, well, political, social, and economic, but let's just stick with the economics for now. So at the very least, it's, it's informed me of, of how, you know, the way Western economics is structured and taught doesn't always necessarily work for different countries, specifically developing countries. Now, I don't, I can't say exactly how that should be changed. It's not my area where I'm special, it's specialized in um, developing economics is more uh, Radhika's area, actually. But at the very least, I'm aware of the, of the major differences that, that can accrue. So how are they different? I can give you just a few examples. So, you know, in South Africa, um, something I found very interesting, I actually learned it from the talk we had from um, Professor Galbraith, was that after apartheid fell, which is a oh, you know, terrible regime, uh, but after it fell, somehow inequality actually went up. And we were like, how the hell did that happen? That, that doesn't make any sense. But uh, it did because, because so many of the people just were undocumented because of apartheid based on race, that then once they were documented, inequality kind of skyrocketed. And it was like, well, you know, what the hell, how did that happen? That was one of the measures. A big one, obviously, is like when we look at the um, factors of production, you know, land, labor, capital, entrepreneurship, um, somewhere, you know, maybe a factor of production in one of the Middle Eastern countries should be like oil, for example, the, the dependency on specific resources for, for countries yeah, can, can change. So, and how does uh, social differences fit into this? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure like social values and culture is very different in South Africa than it is in the US or the UK? Hmm. That's a good question. And, and the question is we don't fully know, or at the very least we don't have a framework entirely for addressing it. So just for example, in South Africa, you get very, you sometimes get very, um, very close communities, very local communities, very much where it's like a few people making money for a large group of people. You know, it's a very kind of community framework as opposed to the American individual framework, right? Or at the very least, the American kind of family framework. Um, and so kind of th that kind of social network and, and that kind of way of looking how, let's just say laborers would participate in, in the workforce, for example, it, it, it can be kind of different. So what do you mean? A few people have a paid job and they pay for their family or the community around them? What do you mean? Uh, little, little bit of both. Yeah, it can be a family. It can be like extended family. It can be up to like 20 or 30 people. A lot of people, yeah. So how is that for you moving from South Africa to the UK and experiencing this change in culture and the way they look at things? Like, did you have to change certain things or did your perspective change in certain ways? Um, not as much as you would think, just because I've been lucky enough to be um, kind of raised very international, if that makes sense. And what I mean, well, I mean two things by that. A, I've been lucky enough to travel quite a bit in my life, but B, um, being like a half American, half South African in South Africa, uh, well, being half, half Afrikaans specifically. And if you've, if you've ever heard an Afrikaans person speak, this is not their accent. <laughs> this is as far as you can get from an Afrikaans accent. So I was almost like, even though I was South African, in some ways, I was like almost a foreigner in my home country, uh, maybe like in, in its extreme version, if that makes sense. So I've always kind of just been a little bit more like international with how I see things, or at the very least, like less less like insular, less like one country focused. So it wasn't that big of a deal for me moving to a completely different context um, and situation. You know, I think maybe if the language was different, sure. Like if I went to uh, Brazil, yeah, maybe that would be a, maybe a different story, but hopefully not as hard as it would have been otherwise. Okay. So you are, are doing strategic consultancy or you did that, you did a strategy consultancy internship. I did, uh, how, it, was, it was like a year and a half ago now. Yeah, in, in South Africa for Deloitte, yeah. So what was it to work there uh, to do it that was, job? It was fun. I mean, it was, um, well, first of all, it was, it was quite a 
for throwing me in the deep end because going from university where you're so flexible to like the strict kind of work life, maybe not necessarily nine to five or whatever it is, but like, you know, that set between eight and 10 hours a day is quite, it's just such a shock as a student, you know, it's, it's really weird. But um, once I got over that, uh, it was fun. It, it, it was in some ways quite nice to be doing something so um, hands-on because like with consulting, you're going up to different, um, at least in the pro in strategy consulting, uh, you have different clients are coming up to you and saying, we want to start this business model. We want to break into this market. So we want to fix this problem, whatever. Um, and like having a very tangible solution and tangible framework for approaching that is something that we don't really find in economics with, with the lack of tangible contributions, shall we say. So it was very different. Um, and it's just kind of funny to think that so many like economic students go into jobs like consulting where they never use economics again. That's kind of a shame uh, just from the economic side, but uh, it was, you know, a great experience, very refreshing, very fun. So do you think that that is a bad thing that many economists move into the field where they don't necessarily use like economic theory anymore? Um, Yes and no. You know, I, I can't say it's entirely a bad thing because plenty of you know people study a degree that they don't end up using and they go into something else. You know, it, sometimes they use the degree in their first job and they go into something else. Plenty of like engineers, for example, become consultants. I remember one of the consultants I met studied chemical engineering, and I was like, "How the hell did he go from chemical engineering to consulting?" But I, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, but apparently, it's quite common. It's a very common thing, apparently, in engineering. Um, so I can't say it like, it's not a bad thing because people should go into what they want to do and use the you know intelligence and tools they've accrued since then to do that. Uh, but in some ways, I think it is kind of a shame because you have a lot of economic students uh, who kind of want to break in you know, exclusively to consulting or banking or, or whatever. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that a lot of the economic theory we use kind of, you don't really touch it again when you, when you get into those kind of roles. Do you think that, that outside of economic theory, there are things you learn as an economic student that you take into any job and you can still apply, like skills you learned or? Oh, yeah, no, sure. I mean, like there is even just, by the way, some economic theory you can, but like that is kind of limited, but that's mostly like the financial economics uh, sectors and some of micro, I guess, in the economic consulting. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, you know, I think there is, I think the the, the maths and the stats you learn, obviously, but more so the mindset of like, there's this problem and we need to find a way to fix it. And saying that, you can see why the consulting appeals to some economic student, because that is what consulting is. So that like mindset of, of having a situation where whatever recession happens or inflation happens or whatever, you know, catastrophe, next catastrophe hits the economy, we need to find a way to fix it while minimizing the losses is, is you know, a, a, the mindset that can work in many jobs. What I found really interesting when I was also working uh, on like different projects with also people from, for example, business administration, was that economists really split them in variables and then take them apart. Like this could not be the cost, this could not be the cost. And then you have like one left that is a like cost effect yeah. and then very straightforward. And, and then we would be sure. like, well, it can't be this, it can't be that, it can't be this yeah. one. So it has to be that one, which is very oh. interesting to me how analytical and critical we were raised even though it's only one school so in some ways you're not raised very crit critical because you only learn one way of thinking at the same time you learn these analytical skills where it's like no you 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 leave out all these variables because it can't be them so it has to be one of these um i don't know how you've experienced this i uh, I haven't experienced it exactly as you said per se, but I very much like agree. That's kind of a, a better way of, of answering your own question than my answer, to be honest. Because yeah, we, like we always have, when we're modeling something, we want a single variable for a single uh, context or, or economic um, application you find in the economy, right? So yeah, the whole of aggregate consumption is always modeled by C or in the whole of investments modeled by I and you know, blah, 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 blah. And you, you have like a, a, set a set variable for a set criteria. And so, and then by doing that, hopefully, because the economics and the economy is complex, you can then like, by isolating and eliminating different variables, get to an answer on the specific variable you're looking for. And we use that in macroeconomics or, or microeconomics, whatever. So that mindset and then applying that to business, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. One thing you said that really, that I am really worried about is how did you get used to nine to five? Because right now, as a university student, especially now that everything is online, I am really enjoying 
being able to put work between two classes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. moving everything around the way I want. How did you get used, like what did you have to adjust or get used to in working a job that was like on the job, be there at this time? Um, you know, it's, uh, to be honest, it's, it's not as hard as you think. I think we, we go into it with a lot of fear. Uh, which I can understand, like like coming as a student. I love being a student, man. It's it's great. But uh, you do you kind of just get used to it. Like the first whatever week or two is hard. We're kind of like, how am I going to adjust? But then you you kind of just ease into it. You slowly just get used to it, and by eventually it kind of just um it happens. I will say your time management becomes a bit better because then like when you have a break, you don't waste it uh, doing something you might not have wanted to do, like you will as a student, because like you'll kind of not have so much time to yourself. So. Uh, uh, you'll kind of know what you want to do with the time you have off. So what is more your thing? Is it consulting? Is it academia? Is there something else you really want to get into? Um, it's, I've kind of have a few interests. Uh, I do like academia. I, I do really enjoy economics and I'm looking into it, but do I see myself going into academia like being a professor? No. Um, the two things I'm really interested in uh, is the one is like policy um, and the other is is investments essentially uh, and, and, and equity research which I know are quite far away from each other but now the reason kind of I decided on maybe investment so far in equity research is that like well I would I do like policy I'm really interested in it in terms of how good you have to be in your economics to get a job in policy it's it's I, I would say it's almost harder than getting into like investment banking just because there's so there's not many policy jobs and there's plenty of economics graduates. So you really have to be very good at your economics to, to get a job like that. Um, and I don't, even though I, I'm not like saying I'm, I'm the worst student in the world, I don't think I'm like the top 5% of students or whatever. Uh, so that kind of narrowed it down for me. So I started getting involved into like equity research is probably where I'd want to go right now. Um, uh, we'll see how that turns out, I suppose. <laughs> so relating to that, you are helping with research on investment funds in Durham. And you are in a student-run investment fund, something like yeah. that, right? So what yeah, do you do with them? With it's the... two things. So the, the one is a student, just a yeah, student fund, just me and, and a few other students who, who invest together, basically. But we do, uh, we do you know, invest real capital and we do use, you know, uh, different valuation techniques and, and, and so forth to decide which, invest, which equities to invest in. Uh, uh, and so that, that's basically what it is. It's basically just something to get real hands-on experience because when you want to learn to invest, it's all good and well to say like you learn how to draft a recommendation or you learn with like a trading account or whatever, that's fine. But uh, there's nothing that gives you like experience like risking your own money in the stock market. <laughs> um, so that that's part pretty much what it was. And then the other thing I do is there was, um, basically there, there, uh, there was this, uh, ex-Durham graduate, uh, I think he graduated with his master's from Durham, um, who he worked in the industry for a bit. I don't know exactly uh, what he did, but he eventually decided he was going to start up his own fund. And he started up multiple funds. And one of those is a fund exclusively uh, uh, run by our students. So we, we make, you know, recommendations for, for him um, and for the you know, fund itself. And then we kind of vote on it. And those that get voted through, we invest it. So. And that's more formal. So that's a more formal process. You have to draft, draft like a whole equity research recommendation with you know specific templates and specific techniques. Whereas the other thing is more casual, kind of like if you really like a company, you have a good feeling, then you know the people will be like, "Hey, go ahead," as long as you know what you're talking about. Okay. So how did you get into investment and equity? Because I don't know about you, but for me and the people around me, I know it's not something you learn or you you get an education or you learn from home. You kind of roll into learning about the investment world how did you get into it that's a good question i think um i think yeah maybe except finance students there isn't really anything that teaches you about equity and even then it's it's only partially um so how I, I got involved in two ways the one was that my one of my best friends here also uh wanted to get involved in investing so we kind of both just ended up discovering like this about each other uh and say well why, why don't we try it <laughs> and then via that we just got slowly got experience and, and we, we made you know many mistakes and we also made many good calls and, and now we're kind of know to some extent what we're talking about but the, the the second half of that answer is um the durham finance society here runs its own like student fund and i applied to be an analyst for that i think in my second year 
and I did that. And they give you like a, a little bit more of a formal way of going about it, which, which helps a lot when it comes to like how you kind of get experience for it. And so those two things combined uh, is what got me involved. And then, well, we talked about what I'm doing now with it. So that's how I got here. Okay, that's so cool. That's, that's really nice though that you learn about it now because you hear so many people that are like, I wish I'd started investing sooner because it's a long-term thing next to like, if you don't want to run like high risk, high reward things, yeah. you want to do it for long-term. And then people who find out so late what it actually means or what it entails. That's really, that's really interesting that you already started now. No, thank you. That's the hope. I mean, uh, while my, like my career focus is trying to go into investments, even if I don't make it in there, I was just having this conversation with um, um, that, that guy I mentioned, my, my friend here about it. It's that we want to uh, have the knowledge now so that when we actually have like a decent amount of capital, be able to make the right calls with it and maybe make some money, you know, um, because even though like we use real money here, it's still nothing compared to what like a firm would use, right? It's, it's, it's you know, dro drops in the ocean, but hopefully one day we'll have some kind of, you know, meaningful amount of capital, which we'll then know what to do with because we've had the experience. So that was kind of like the, the very long-term goal. Well, that's a good goal. <laughs> Hopefully. Say. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'll, I'll ask me in a few years after I lost all my money. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> so at the beginning, you said you were uh, starting to sign up for masters. What kind of masters are you looking into? What kind of topics do you want to specialize in? Uh, so that would be, um, I kind of tried to find masters which were would help both my like economic kind of just um, the fact that I just enjoy doing economics but that would also tailor it a bit more to my current career goal, as, as, as we've mentioned, of like equities. So I've been mostly applying for MSCs in economics and finance um, because that is kind of like a good halfway point between those two goals. Um, and they complement each other too, economics and finance, obviously, to some extent. Um, that's mostly what I've been applying to. I have done a few different ones. So I applied for a, a London Business School doesn't offer any economics and finance. They only offer a... a a master's in finance or a master's in like management and then management covers a whole bunch of different things but economics and finance are at least part of that and so I, that was the only one where i applied where that, that was very different to my other applications but most of them have been masters in economics and finance yeah so how is it applying to finance masters is it really hard to get into now or does that differ per school how how is that yeah, that differs per school right so that's more like if you're going to apply to like cambridge and oxford that's going to be kind of hard to get into <laughs> uh uh, whereas if you apply to maybe um, what's like a good like uh, then maybe maybe more of a like a slightly lower tier but very good would be like University of Edinburgh for example fantastic school not in the same league like Oxbridge but very very good school um, it, yeah so short answer it depends on the school like you know LSE Oxbridge UCL uh, Warwick places like that quite hard to get into and then you have like another kind of semi secondary tier like Edinburgh maybe um, a City University in London or even Durham. Um, and then obviously there's like progressively gets worse, but it depends on like, yeah, your, your, your strength in your application and, and the prestige of the school. Fair enough. So uh, with every guest, we do a little lightning rounds. Cool. Um, so I just ask the question and you just say the first thing that pops up. Okay. All right. Sounds good. We what just is get a some... skill any economist should learn? Counterfactual nuance. Okay, you got to explain that one. <laughs> so, so that was, I walked into my um, history of economics course in first year, which is by far one of the best courses I've ever taken. And the professor was like, you need to develop counterfactual nuance, which is basically uh, taking a nuanced approach to any theory or any economist, any school of thought, any economic way of thinking, but by constantly balancing what they say with what's with the assumptions, with the flaws, with, with your critique. It, it's basically just taking a very, very critical approach to something, but with the objective of getting towards like a more efficient outcome or like the truth, not necessarily just to tear it to shreds for the sake of tearing it to shreds. <laughs> okay, wow. So you basically learn what they believe and then next to that you hold the assumptions to see if that matches and makes sense. Exactly. They, like, and use the baseline to see if the outcomes actually make sense yeah exactly it's kind of a fancy word for just being like how does this does this actually work in reality it, it, does it apply how can you apply it what what if those if those core assumptions break down how does the conclusions of the model change 
And so like, I think it's epitomized most by that professor was, and I quote, a left-wing supply-side economist, which is like, how, how the hell does that happen? That's like, uh, so like supply-side economics is being like associated with like Milton Friedman, Margaret Thatcher, those kind of people, but now how somehow he's left-wing. And I was like, how, how does that make sense? But that, that's, that's who he was. So uh, that, that, that's probably the first thing economics students should learn, yeah. So why doesn't that make sense though? Why, why does supply side economists and left wing not match? It, it, you know, I wouldn't say that they entirely don't match. Like in the spirit of what I just said, obviously there's some overlap and there's some, you know, you can be pro certain things and con certain things, whatever. But in general, or taking like a very broad brush approach to it is supply side of the, the supply side of economics is associated with a very kind of conservative political view, usually just because supply side eco economics focuses on like saying that, you know, the individual will fix the problem or uh, uh, you don't need a lot of government intervention to fix a, a um, economic problem. That's kind of supply side economics, which, which is aligned with the conservative like ideology of, of not a lot of government intervention in your own like life, whether it's like fiscal stimulus or law or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Okay. Huh. Okay. Next question. What is the question you want me to ask that I haven't asked you yet? That's a good question. Um, Thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, so you've asked me like why I like economics and you've asked me um, maybe like what career I wanna go into, but you haven't like asked me exactly like in like what my maybe dream is or like what like in an ideal world what I'd be doing. You know, if, if I, let's say had a whole bunch, if I was like, retired and had, all, and had a whole bunch of money, you know, what do I actually like want to do with life maybe as opposed to what I want to do with a job? And maybe okay. that's the question, yeah. All right, then right. what do you want to do with life? That's a good, yeah, well, there you go. And uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I suppose the dream is I've always um, uh, wanted to look into to writing and, and, and creative writing, whether that's like a novel or, or whatever. That's always been something I've wanted to look into. And I won't get too into it now because obviously this is more of an economics discussion, but I've always had a bit of a passion for it. I've done a little bit of it, a little bit of writing here and there. And uh, I've always just found I've been like way too impacted by whatever fictional story it is or movie it is, maybe like more so than it should have, right? And so that's kind of always been like a bit of a dream I wanted to pursue, but I didn't like take my higher education with that in because I was like, let me get like a reliable job before trying to pursue that, which maybe is the wrong way of thinking about it. Maybe you should just do exactly what you want to do. But that's that's the question I suppose I'll leave there. Do you think that's more important to get a reliable job? Because I mean, with the pandemic, we have seen that reliable jobs yeah, are not really <laughs> a thing. <laughs> so. Great question. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, you, you got me there. Uh, yeah, it's only reliable until the next uh, big crash, right? Then you're gone. But um. It, I suppose I'd, I'd have to take an economic way of it, answering that and be it. It depends on your risk preference, right? Yes, uh, sir. There you go. It, you know, it depends on how risky you want to be going forward. So you don't like taking big risks? No, I'd say I'm more of a calculated risk type of guy. It's not that I don't like taking a big risk, it's that I won't take it unless I really am very confident with it. Hmm. Okay. So where can people find the things you are most enthusiastic about if they want to learn more? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, your website for one, Rethinking Economics is a good job of, of talking about the different uh, parts of economics. Our website, so the, the you know, Durham Society for Economic Pluralism, just look them up. Uh, uh, that's one. Um, maybe just- sign up somewhere for the magazine, by the way? Because that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. I will- um, should I send you a link after the talk? Would that be yeah. easier? Yeah, okay. I'll send it over to you. If Rethinking wants to use it, that would be, we'd, we'd really love that. But uh, yeah, we can give the to the articles and the different talks and whatever. Um, I think the only other place you could look for things we're interested in would be, um, maybe just if, if whoever watches this looks up what post-Keynesian economics is, then I've succeeded. <laughs> just look look at what look up what it is and then that would be, that, that then I'm happy. Yeah. Why is that your goal? <laughs> Just uh, that's kind of the school I currently align with. Uh, obviously, I don't fully align with any school. I think uh, I it would I probably shouldn't be the president of the pluralism society if I was. But uh, <laughs> and and I want to go into investments. So you know, there you go. That's very supply side. But whatever. Um, 
uh, that's kind of my right now my uh, school of thoughts and it's rather unorthodox uh, and has some very very applicable economics very complex very high like models that I don't understand I couldn't make them myself by any means but very, very interesting stuff okay so what is your advice for future economists don't disregard everything we have but don't take it as the be all and end all i think it's important that you know we keep trying to push for applicable economics real world economics but that doesn't mean we should like disregard everything that's been done so you know a lot of people on the more heterodox side of things like you know where i stand more or less in economics kind of say you know if it's all just math and equations it's there's not much point to it because it doesn't work i also don't agree with that it's it's about kind of taking everything we have and everything that's been built and making it better. And final question, what does the future of economics look like according to you? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, um, it's like perfect moment in history to ask that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends on how economies recover going forward. It depends on how inequality is addressed. It depends on if we stay in, you know, wage um a real wage uh, stagnation um any economic growth starts to occur again because if if those things if if uh the situation that western countries found themselves in for quite a while since the 2008 leading up to the coronavirus recession holds i think we have a problem because in that time we had you know wage stagnation rampant inequality lack of real wage growth which gave rise, in my opinion, to very, very extreme political leaders. Uh, I don't think I need to mention who I would be referring to there. Uh, and I think the future of economics needs to try and address those problems, but will also be shaped by the response to those problems. So what would you want it to look like then? What would I want it to look like? Wow. Uh, probably just as we've been talking about throughout the, uh, the interview with um, a more applicable lens, um, less like just isolation from from reality, and and teaching from multiple different schools of thought. You know, I I don't want to take away all the neoclassical work by any means, but it would be really cool if I could go to a university and they offer post Keynesian economics or or heterodox economics or uh, institutional economics, Austrian economics, whatever it is. So more just kind of like a, a broad, diversified um, um, syllabus. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. Thank you so much for having me.